I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history... We talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Before we kick off the show, if you're a fan of History Hack, please do what you can to support the show. We completely get that not everyone is able or willing to dig into their pockets. Times are hard. But by dropping a like, subscribing on Twitter and YouTube, and importantly, leaving a review wherever you get your podcasts, you can help the programme grow and reach more people. If you're interested in becoming a supporter, go to patreon.com forward slash history hack, where you'll find perks from secret Facebook groups to early release material. If you just want to leave us a one-off tip, go to co-fee.com forward slash history hack. The links are in the description. And whatever form your kind support takes, know that we are massively grateful. Enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to another instalment of History Hack. This is actually the second take of me doing this introduction, such is my skill at presenting after having many episodes of these. We have your favourite duo on presenting duties today, me and Matt. Probably going to get into a bit of trouble with the boss for saying that we're your favourite presenting duo, but you know it's true. Boney, how are you doing? I'm very well. I'm sure I can produce some statistics that proves that fact. So, Well, if not, we'll just make them up, right? That's what yeah, Napoleon sure. did. So, you know, job done. So who are we talking to today and why are we particularly looking forward to this one? We are. We've, we've got dodgy MPs today and we're talking to Marie Lacan, who is an author who's written a couple of books. Haven't you heard? Gossip, Politics and Power. And the book we're going to be discussing today, which is out shortly, Honourable Misfits. A brief history of Britain's weirdest, unluckiest, and most outrageous, um, outrageous, outrageous MP. Marie, welcome to the show. How are you doing? Uh, I am doing very well. Thank you for having me. It's a, it's a delight. We, we, do, we do like subjects like this one. And uh, it's, it's, it's going to be fun to, to delve in and, and see what you've got in store for us. Let's, do, let's, let's get cracking then. So, Honourable Misfits, what's the concept? Um, because it's not really a book about politics at all, really. Is it? It's not. So basically, to be completely honest, um, it's actually um, John Murray, the publishers, who got in touch with my agent and said, we kind of had this idea for a book. And, you know, and they kind of said... We're not certain what we want to do. We know we want to do something quite fun and, you know, from a historical perspective about Parliament and kind of, you know, MPs who are out of the ordinary, basically. Um, and, you know, that I know is that something that would interest you? And I said, absolutely. It's definitely the sort of thing that would interest me, especially um, because this was uh, April of 2020 and I had nothing else on in my life like everyone else in the world. So that, you know, I, I, absolutely, this sounds right up my street. Um, and yeah, and then, yeah, I, I sort of, you know, started doing research and everything. And what ended up being quite fun is that 
the book is yeah it is about honorable misfits and kind of there's no you know it's not just about let's say mps who are eccentrics or mps who are inventors or villains etc there's kind of a bit of everything so you do have people who are just you know awful awful men effectively you know and terrible criminals you had people who effectively just shagged around quite a lot in a way that was quite entertaining and you and you do have people you know who again um did brilliant brilliant things so so there's sort of yeah a, a bit of everything just that the more colorful characters effectively that sat on the green benches at some point over the past 700 years so it's the quintessential lockdown book. I like that a lot. And it's it's a great read. I obviously, you know, we do our research, folks, before we put these episodes together. So I have read it. And it's one of those really nice ones to kind of dip in and out of, actually. It's one of those that you, if you want to just read a little chunk, you, you can do and you take a lot away from it and then come back to it. Or if you want to just keep powering on through, then, you know, you do this, this thing in chunks. And we're going to kind of look at those kind of blocks of people in a second so you talk about eccentrics you talk about the ones who were kind of shagging around and 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 we're going to explore some of those stories you talk about how it's a kind of eclectic mix i guess of, of individuals do you think there's anything that unites them particularly other than the fact that they were mps Ooh, i would say they were all um hmm i said that they were all yeah certainly sort of like out of the ordinary so i think it's not just the fact that they were they were weird you know and on top of that were members of parliament i think these are people who despite the fact they were politicians were just kind of weird in general you know if you'd encountered any of them in your day-to-day -day life you probably would have gone that's the weirdo <laughs> so yeah probably probably yeah out of the ordinary i'd say you start by looking at some folks who you describe as eccentrics so you've got some pretty eccentric individuals in here so let's start with john bentick what was it with him and um personal interaction john bentick is i think actually weirdly one of my favorite ones uh, in the entire book he was a man who was um very wealthy came from a very you know sort of like wealthy family and inherited the family estate um and moved there um and his thing was that you know he just didn't really want to be seen by anyone kind of even like, just perceived by anyone so he got um, these workmen to build basically this massive network of tunnels uh, underneath the estate and including some, you know, large, large rooms as well. So it's not just the tunnels you were there. He could just effectively live his entire life below ground and including, I think, which I always enjoyed, like a ballroom as well. And it's like, you're a man who does not even enjoy the company of one person. Why would you build yourself an entire ballroom? You will never have a ball in there. And he never did have a ball in there. Um, and then he would only leave... Um, the, the tunnels in the at night, I think, with a woman servant who'd walk whatever you know forty paces um, after him to sort of like lead the way. Um, anyone who acknowledged him uh, was fired from his staff um, on the spot, which is kind of weird because in many other respects he was actually quite a good employer and quite a good boss. But you know, again, like you were just not able to talk to him. Um, and what what's especially interesting about him is that at the time, you know, people of the era knew about him. And there were so many rumours about, you know, was it was it that, you know, he'd had some horrible sort of like disfigurement or he was some kind of pervert or et cetera. And no one knew why he was doing all that. But then as far as we know, there, there was, you know, nothing of the sort. He was just a man who wanted to be by himself all the time and ideally below ground. <laughs> and, you know, why not follow, follow your dreams, you know? <laughs> I mean, it is amazing what you can do with a heck of a lot of money, isn't it? And, you know, that decision to yeah, I'm just going to kind of build tunnel networks. And, you know, if you look at me or if you talk to me, <laughs> you're fired. It's one of those ones I just kind of looked at this and went, what? Because I think you led with this, this thing about, so somebody has a conversation with him, you know, trying to impress his boss and then gets sacked. 
And I think one of them got fired for just waving at him, I think, um, like from afar. It's We've incredible. all been there. Yeah, it seems a bit extreme, doesn't it? <laughs> yes, but, but I mean, on the other hand, I think they um, he built was it like a roller skating rink, uh, if I remember correctly, for his staff. So once they were done with work, they could just have some fun. So again, in, in other ways, like generally a very, very good boss, uh, which is why it's so puzzling that, yeah. Yeah, it must have been weird working for him. So like overwhelmingly nice, but also just you know, high danger of you could just could not bump into him. And you were saying about, you know, some people speculated that he was a perv. Why? How did they put all of this together? Was it just, well, he's different, so therefore, you know, he must have perversions or, or was there something more to it? No, I think it was that. But again, I think, you know, that's arguably something that still happens in politics today. I think if you look at the weirder MPs, there's always going to be some rumours about them or people, you know, and I can say as someone who used to be a, a you know political gossip columnist, I had so many people asking about so many MPs saying, you know, that one, I bet that one's into some really weird stuff. And it's actually to the best of my knowledge, you know, not being there myself, but um, but to the best of my knowledge, you no, know, it's just someone who's a bit odd. Um, and that's that. So I think people do associate the two together um, quite often. Okay, so the next one I want to talk about, and I'm stealing this one from Boney, poor Boney, um, is James Morrison. He's the one that I call Gloves Guy, and this is genius. I don't want to give anything away, but tell us about his dodgy import methods. Uh, so, well, James Morrison ended up becoming the well, one of the richest commoners I think um, England has ever seen. Um, and he was a businessman. He was effectively just a very, um, a, a very skilled businessman. But, you know, and, that, and that's kind of the controversy and the thing that's quite interesting about him, which is that there's sort of a fine line, I think, between someone being very good at business and someone just being a crook. And one of the things, so yeah, well, one of the many examples um, is that he would buy gloves from abroad um, and, you know, and the shipment kind of arrived, let's say, in Portsmouth um, and, and he'd refuse to pay the taxes, um, you know, which you had to pay. And so obviously, so then uh, the lot would just get auctioned. Um, but that was entirely fine because no one would buy it because that shipment happened to only be left-handed gloves. So he could bid for it, be the only one to bid for it, you know, um, to bid for it in effect. And then, you know, pay basically no money. In the meantime, all the right-handed gloves would arrive at Great Yarmouth or something. He'd do the entire thing again over there to get the other pair of gloves. And yeah, so I ended up just basically getting these gloves without having to pay a penny in tax, um, which again, you know, not, not, technically illegal I suppose so it's a yeah it's an interesting one it's not just that he was I think I can't remember to be completely honest but I think it was the concert of the consort of the royal of the time whose health was failing so he bought them all the black crepe in the country but thinking you know people are going to be mourning in about you know a month to six months um and you know that's exactly what happened you know that person died and then he was able to sell that black crepe uh, to all the wealthy people wanting to mourn properly uh, for a lot of money. So again, yeah, fine line between <laughs> between crook and genius. It's clever though. It's I mean, you you you've got to admire the intellect of the guy to kind of look at the loophole and exploit it like that. Don't you think, Bernie? Bernie's looking at me skeptically. Like, what are you on about? It's taking not letting your left hand know what your right hand is doing a little oh, bit too boom. seriously. <laughs> boom. <laughs> Now you know why I wanted to ask that question. <laughs> we we sort of go from dodgy import methods. What well, to be fair, genius import methods. Let's let's be fair. That's yeah. If he could have pulled it off with socks, he probably would have. Um, we 
your next group you sort of call the the unfortunates so who are, who are these folks and why did you want to have a look into them um that's i'm going to be completely honest with you that entire group is just people who died in very stupid ways and that just amused me a lot like i'm fundamentally a simple woman you know and what i like in life is just people dying in a really really dumb way that amuses me a lot and and then basically I kept stumbling upon them. And I think that first I wasn't sure if I was going to include them or not, but I just kept stumbling upon more and more. And I sort of like set them aside, set them aside, set them aside. And eventually I was like, you know what? I think I actually have enough for a category. Um, so yes, yeah, so, so that was effectively just my own amusement. Um, and, and then hopefully the amusement of others who then you know went on to read the book. Um, it works really well though. I've got to say, you know, let's be honest, history hack, we love a dumb death. One of my favourites in terms of the ones that caught my eye, though, was, I'm going to butcher the pronunciation here, Robert Aglion Slaney? Slaney? I've, apologies. Um, you could probably correct me on that. But He's dead. You don't have to worry. This is true. I mean, he's not, it's not like he's going to sue me, is it? So tell us about him, because this strikes me as being kind of that overly macho Richard the First star scenario, which will become clear when, when you tell us all about him. Yes, well, he, so if I remember correctly, he went to, I want to say the, well, I can't remember what it's called, but you know, the International Fair or something, then at Crystal Palace, I think it was, um, and tripped and fell, as one does, um, and, you know, and had a wound on his leg, um, and, and, you know, and fundamentally just, just refused to do anything about it, even though it was clearly getting sort of, you know, worse and worse and worse, and probably could have been treated, um, and then caught gangrene, and, you know, and that was kind of that, and he just died, which, again, just a, a very stupid way to die. Um. See, for folks who don't know, the story about Richard I is that everyone has watched um, that Robin Hood remake with Russell Crowe and they go, oh, yeah, he gets shot with a, a crossbow bolt and that's it. He's done for. But initially that wound was treatable. And instead, because it's Richard III and he's oh so macho, he goes, no, no, leave it. It's fine. Gets infected. And then by the time the surgeons actually look at it, it's untreatable. And that's why he dies something like a week later. It's oh. Richard the First dies because he's too bloody macho for his own good. I did not know that. That is a very good fact. And that's why people listen to History Hack. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of which, um, you've got a section in your book which kind of sums us up, really, because you call it The Lustful and Idle, um, which, if you've ever listened to our Down the Pub episodes, is basically that. Um <laughs> So you got some really interesting, we're going to call them Mavericks in here. Um, Robert Boothby, let's get into this one, because who have we got? We've got a cast list that involves Hitler, the craze, and then the efforts to reform the homosexuality laws. So what is it about Boothby? Um, it, well, actually, the, the Hitler anecdote is, I think, again, one of my favourite anecdotes in the entire book. So thank you for bringing it up. Um, no, so he met, um, he went to Germany to meet uh, with uh, Hitler um, and, and was not, to be clear, was not a Nazi sympathiser. He was kind of you know, interested in um, foreign affairs, effectively, and was tr trying to understand what was happening on the continent. Um, and then he wrote in his memoirs, and it's extremely funny, is that he sort of turns up and is like, OK, you know, went to see this quite weird bloke, you know, Adolf Hitler. Um, and as I go into the room, he stood up and sort of like sprung up to his feet and went, Hal Hitler. And he said, well, you know, so I went, Hal Boothby. Uh, <laughs> which, yeah, which I weirdly love. It's so, yeah, anyway. Uh, but no, so um, Boothby is mostly famous for, so he was, yeah, so he was a conservative uh, member of parliament. Um, he was also gay. 
Um, and and had a fondness for the kind of like quite like younger sort of like more working class men of the East End of London, and as a result struck a friendship with um, the Cray twins, which not really an ideal you know an ideal thing to do really as a, as a lawmaker. Not not the greatest um, bunch of guys. Um, and yeah, and the idea being, I think that you know. It, it was a slight tit for tat thing where I think Boothby could help a bit and it helped the craze a bit. And on the other hand, the craze could effectively provide young working class men uh, to Boothby. He he got caught um, eventually by the mirror, if I recall correctly, uh, but managed to see you and actually um, the mirror lost. And that was kind of that. Um, but yeah, but at the same time, you know, well, one of the good things he did do is that he did uh, campaign for the legalization of uh, homosexual acts. He did not quite manage to get there, if memory serves, but at least, you know, he, he did kind of start that journey um, in Parliament. So, again, quite, quite a complicated character, I'd say. I love that anecdote about Hitler. Um, it reminds me of the one, Boney, you'll be able to confirm if this is apocryphal or not, but there's one about Halifax, isn't there, where he goes out um, for a meeting with the, the top brass of the Nazi party. And um, Halifax doesn't know who he's looking for when he's taken for an audience with Hitler. And so he sees, I forget who it is, I think it might be Goering, and kind of assumes that because of his stature that Goering is, is the guy to um, kind of pay lip service to. And he goes to hand his coat to this little kind of guy in a, a dusty brown coat. And everyone's going, nine, nine, that's the Führer. Halifax <laughs> <laughs> is literally kind of going, Hey, would you mind terribly taking my gloves to <laughs> the Führer? Um, so it certainly has an, an air about it. So yeah, not. Um, I nearly said something, then nearly regretted it. But yes, yeah, so I'm going to sadly open this with not to compare myself to Adolf Hitler, um, but being a young woman in Westminster when I was younger, that meant that quite often people confuse me for waitresses. Like I've had, I will not name names, but several times people literally taking my glass of wine out of my hands because they assumed I was serving them, which is me going. I, mean, I, I know I'm 24, but no, I'm, I'm actually, you know. <laughs> so, yeah, so again, not, not the best way to open with an anecdote there, but I, I, yeah, I feel like I've said it now. So <laughs> We are definitely leaving that in. That is not getting edited out. Um, <laughs> and hopefully there are going to be some significant people in society listening to this with egg on their face right now, thinking, ah, oh, yeah, I have a distinct memory of taking wine <laughs> from the young lady, you know, however many years ago. Um, I want to just tap into what you were saying about how he wasn't, how Boothby wasn't successful with the reform to the law on homosexuality. Was his credibility undermined by the mirror story? And is that why it doesn't go through in the end? Oh, I think, yes and no. I think that certainly didn't help. Um, but it's also, I think, the, the, the problem, I think, that, that kept happening. So, you know, you did have for quite a long time these MPs campaigning uh, to legalise uh, homosexuality. Um, in a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. But I think the problem was always, you know, whoever was Home Secretary at that point was, you know, it's still a very homophobic society, obviously, was like, well, actually, you know, and I think that's what happened around the Boothby at times as well, was like, well, actually, everyone's going to think I'm gay if I'm the Home Secretary who basically legalises it, so I do not want to do it. So I think there was a weird 
personal angle to it of all these again quite blokey macho men going well no like if I'm the one to do it then people are going to assume I'm one of them um which again is you know somewhat counterproductive um but yes I think I think that was uh, mostly that ready to pop the question the jewelers at bluenile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, They always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. I'm just realizing that I've been thinking Robert Boothby's been someone else this whole time. I need to go back and read up on him. Which means your book is going on the shelf, Murray. Um, let's chat about some of the some of the others who sort of. Let's change the the direction here. And talk about someone who's a bit nice, shall we? Arthur Kavanagh. Um, lots stacked against him, but yet he sort of rises to the top and is sort of a counterpoint to some of your other more colourful characters. Yes, uh, Kavanagh was born in Ireland uh, in a really rich family, which was lucky for him because he was also born uh, with no arms or legs, um, which, you know, very much at the time would have meant, I think, you know, would have been a death sentence. But again, he was from this family that was very wealthy. And so they were kind of able to adapt, um, you know, life on the estate so he could grow up um, like the, the way his siblings did. And and yet he sort of had this lovely life. So I think, you know, even when he was a teenager, he got in trouble quite a lot for just shagging around let's you know <laughs> know the way to put it and then kind of ended up traveling around the world a lot and once more getting in trouble spending a bit too much time in the harems of india if i remember correctly um came back eventually and obviously at the time ireland um fielded mps in westminster um and yes got, got elected to parliament um he so a i cannot believe that no one does this anymore and it makes me so sad but he traveled to and from parliament on his boat so he he had a ship that he basically like a yacht i think um, and he sailed up to Parliament, which is so cool, like, which is just such a cool thing to do. Um, and yeah, and basically had this servant who would um, he would carry him effectively and put him on the green benches. And he was a very, very well respected uh, member of the House of Commons, which, again, I find really fascinating because I'm, you know, I'm, I'm a self um and I very much identify as a political nerd. I'd never heard of him before. And he is a man who, again, as you said, you know, kind of overcame that like, against all odds, managed to become this great politician in his own right. Um, and yeah, and just led a very good life. It's nice to actually have a, a, a positive person to talk about in Parliament, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So now that we've raised the tone, let's drag it straight back down again and, and, and bring in some, bring in some scams. Um, we've, we've covered a few down in, in our Mary Rose virtual pub, um, but let's talk about Orlando Bridgman um, who comes in your outlaws and villains section, um, which I do hope Robert Maxwell's in as well, but we'll come back to that later. 
Um, yeah, Orlando Bridgman is um, has a sort of great legacy. So as far as I'm, hang on. <coughs> and yeah, Orlando Bridgman is, um, you know, has been leader's great legacy because he is, as far as I'm aware, the first person who ever sort of like famously faked his own death. Um, where he was, uh, he was, you know, politician and kind of again wealthy man, which is a bit of a theme in the book. Um, Enyan got given this assignment uh, abroad that he did not want to do at all. Um, and yeah, and I think days or the day before he was meant to leave and the ship was meant to depart, uh, uh, really badly disfigured body was found. And as day before, we were up, um, he just disappeared. Um, and it looked, you know, to all intents and purposes, like he drowned. Um, and, and I think his clothes were even found um, close to the body of water. Um, and, you know, and obviously, you know, he's dead. And I think even like his son inherited his titles, etc. Um, but so the local authorities, if I remember correctly, thought, hang on, this feels a bit convenient um, and actually put a price on his head. Um, and then he was found uh, effectively, I think, in a pub a few cities away, so like a few months later, um, which, yeah, which, and then if I remember correctly, I always felt quite bad for his son because I think the son obviously then lost the titles because turns out the dad was alive and the son died before his father died. So it was like, oh, oh. Like you had a nice fancy life for like three months <laughs> and then that was taken away from you again. Charles, is it Bradlove? Bradlow is another hilarious one. So this guy, he gets elected and you've got to go through a process to get elected, let's bear in mind. <laughs> and then he can't decide whether or not he's going to take the oath and basically spends so much time asking around over, I'll take it, I won't take it, I will take it, I won't take it, that he pisses off the entirety of the House of Commons is that right? It is. Well, he wasn't. He was, yeah, again, one of the first, like, properly prominent atheists, and so got elected. And Enyan at first really objected to the idea that he had to swear on the Bible and take the oath. Um, Enyan, as you said, so kind of you know, like, faffs about for quite a long time, tries to find a way around it. The parliamentary authorities do like the Speaker of the House of Commons is like, no, listen, you know, quite a straightforward process. You just have to do it. Um, and then it becomes this entire thing where I think eventually. He decides that fine, I'll do it, but then writes a scathing sort of like column in the Times, just saying, "Well, you know, this is stupid, and I hate it, and I don't believe in it, and I resent it." So then, obviously, the Speaker of the House of Commons gets quite mad and says, "Well, no." And then, sort of like long story short, and again, obviously, the entry in the book is goes into more detail. But there's a sort of weird hokey cokey thing where he keeps busy refusing to take the oath, but wanting to be an MP. So then they strike him off. Uh, and the election is run again in the constituency. He wins again, and he's like, "Well, I'm still not taking it." Or, you know, I'm not doing this. Or, I'm not doing that. Uh, all the speakers, all the MPs, just go, "No, actually, no." So again, another election is held, etc. So that goes on for several years. Where again, it just keeps happening. Uh, he even gets this courted out of the House of Commons, I think, um, by security at least once, if not several times. Um, and yeah, and and we'll just, you know, <laughs> sort of like not stop. And and eventually, he does. You know, it's also a story with quite a good ending because. It does. I think it's eventually it took a change of speakers. So I think the next speaker who came in was like, actually, you know what? Fine, I'm bored of this now. I don't want to, you know, sort of like carry that on. Um, and yeah, so Ch Charles is is the reason why now, you know, if you see, you know, every new election, you all have MPs swearing in on all sorts of documents and books, etc. And he was again, I guess, the pioneer for that. Um, so yeah, so, so both quite a funny. It was both quite a funny thing to write about, but also generally like, oh, that's really interesting. You know, the kind of like beginning of one strand of history, I suppose. And another strand of history is women in politics, because I think a lot of the periods that you discuss, 
you know, women were excluded from running running for office or if they were ennobled from taking a seat in the Lords. But one lady does make it into the book, and her name is Mabel Philipson. What a, what was it about her that meant that she she made the cut? Um, well, so I was really keen to um, include a few female MPs, and I did read a lot about because, again, so one of the rules about the book, um, which I didn't really talk about, is that I only wanted people there who were long dead, um, partly because I did not want to get sued. Um, you know, that's just quite straightforward, really. Um, but also, again, you know, that kind of comes back to what we were talking about earlier about the stupid deaths. I think someone who died in a very stupid way 300 years ago is always going to be a lot funnier than someone who died in a stupid way 20 years ago. Um, and, and yeah, but mostly then the problem is that actually there are not many female MPs who are long dead um, because they've not been able to be MPs for that long. Um, and so Mabel Philipson is actually the third ever female MP to get elected. Um, and it's kind of, it's quite a charming little story. So her husband was a liberal candidate and won, you know, went for a seat, won the election. And then some boring thing happens, which means that he's not actually allowed to take his seat and he's not allowed to run again. And the election, you know, that by-election gets rerun. Um, and, you know, and, and as had been, you know, already a bit of a practice, the idea was, okay, well, you know, the, the, the wife can stand instead and she will stand for, I think, so he was not allowed to stand again for seven or nine years. It, the idea being, okay, she'll get elected, be the MP instead um, for the seven or nine years, and then he can come back you know, once uh, once he's allowed to. But then the, the first thing that was interesting was that Mabel said, okay, fine, I'll do it, but actually I'll stand for the Conservatives. You know, I'm, I'm not a liberal like you. Um, so if, if I'm to do this, I'm going to do it with my own convictions. Um, and yeah, and, and she was this quite interesting character anyway, because she'd grown up actually in Clapham down the road from me um, and and was an actress and is actually you know, reasonably famous, not immensely famous, but reasonably famous. Um, but yeah, no touch politics and got elected and for all intents and purposes ended up being quite a successful MP. And she um, so she didn't really like speaking in the Commons, but did quite a lot of good work in select committees and also. I believe introduced the first, um, so introduced a private member's bill on checks on nursing homes. And that was the first of, you know, it's kind of the first bit of legislation saying, actually, if you have a nursing home, you should have, you know, that there are some rules you should follow um, and people will be able to check in on you in the business you're running. So again, like a really good piece of legislation. Um, and then she did that. So she went back as well, which is quite fun. She went back to the stage uh, during summer recess. Um, and would apparently amuse the fellow cast members um, by sort of like getting slightly confused and calling the director Mr. Speaker in rehearsals uh, just out of habit. So eventually her husband was um, able to stand again and she decided, and I think he decided he didn't want to stand after all. And then she was like, actually, you know, I'm, I'm fine as well. I'm happy to leave now. She really wanted to have a family effectively and take care of her children. So just went off and did that. And again, she's just, you know, very charming little life really for the third ever female MP. That's a pretty remarkable story. I really like that one. That's probably my favourite so far, which leads me on to what I was going to ask next, which is you cover a lot of people in this book. So who's your favourite? Because you talked about, you know, how you you come across these stories and you kind of put them into little kind of boxes, if you will, of categories. Is there one that was kind of standing out the whole way that, you know, you read it and went, that's got to go in? Well, so I think the one that sticks in my memory more you know more, more than the others was probably Ineas Trebich Lincoln um purely because and I, I will not be able to get through his entire story uh, because it's very long and I think it is actually the longest entry in the book as well so Trebich Lincoln was born in Hungary um man of Jewish descent 
he moved to England originally because he was really like, I think, a petty thief and was on the verge of getting caught and thought, you know, I'm out of here. Fine, I'll go to England. Um, goes to England, uh, decides to convert to, I think, some some flavor of Catholicism, um, becomes a missionary and goes to Canada to convert people, does not manage to do any of that, but instead, I think, does some kind of shagging, if I remember correctly, on the way there and back. So comes back, befriends this uh, liberal grandee, convinces the liberal grandee to fund uh, him running for parliament so in 1910, because also, yeah, Trevor Lincoln was very poor by that point. 1910, uh, he runs as the liberal candidate in Darlington, wins the election, um, despite not being actually a British citizen at that point, uh, but I think he managed to doctor his documents. Um, and uh, and yeah, so like gets to the Commons and spends a bit of time there and then actually realises that MPs don't get paid. And he was like, okay, well, that, that does not solve my money problem. Um, so he stands down again because there was another election at the end of 1910. So stands down then. Um, and then again, and that's when it gets... So just to give you a flavour of it, you know, he then pops up in the most random corners of both the world and history. So, you know, despite, again, being a man of Jewish descent, he ends up um, spending a lot of time in Eastern Europe with kind of like fascist groups, basically. So does that even allegedly meets Hitler once. Um, then so like disappears for a bit, goes gambling in Monaco for a while, um, resurfaces, what was it? Oh man, I can't remember all the details. We have resurfaces in India and becomes a Buddhist monk there for a while. Uh, China as well ended up working for some like Chinese warlords. Um, was for a brief period of time uh, Japan's favorite choice for the Dalai Lama for the next one. Um, was in the US for a bit, pretended to be this basically like really important spy willing to like say it all. Uh, gets arrested by the, at the time, you know, whether the FBI of the era escapes from them then gets caught again um and and again and it's kind of an oh yes i think starts a cult as well that ends up walking from india to england um but it so it kind of never stops and what i find incredibly compelling about that man um is that a so i'd never heard of him before um and b and again yeah i think compelling is really the word it is the fact that he did all these incredible things and i remember reading about him and thinking like you know they can't possibly be more sort of like plot twists and there always were but it's the fact that he was never quite successful enough at any of those things to gain basically you know quite long-term notoriety um, you know long-term fame or long-term success or even you know kind of like money etc um, and yeah, which I find, you know, it's nearly sort of like weirdly bittersweet in a way of just like this guy who clearly was, I think, if not clever, just very talented at being a crook and reinventing himself endlessly, but just never good enough at doing any of the many, many, many things he did. Um, and yeah, so I think that he he's weirdly really stayed with me. I, I, I love that he was on a shortlist for the Dalai Lama. <laughs> Oh, it's brilliant. You mentioned the rules before, and we're going to sort of ask you about sort of how you got into the research. But also the question I sort of would like to pose is what came first, the research or the rules? So do you want to explain to us what your rules were for the book and then how you sort of sque squeezed everybody into it? And who didn't make the cut because they didn't make the rules? There's there's one. Oh, there's no easy way to say this, but I think quite quickly in my research, I realised that the two rules I would have to abide by and actually would make my life quite difficult were no paedophiles and no one who was just like too racist. Uh, but as in, you know, sort of like too racist by the standards of their time, I guess, because I could not obviously, could not have written this book, you know, if, if I'd taken today's, I guess, um, 
you know, sort of like definitions of racism, etc. But but yeah, I, I think the most disheartening one was certainly the beautiful one because the amount of MPs I read about being like, oh, you know, you're quite fun. You were like written about at the time as you know this eccentric, bit mysterious, bit kooky. Oh, not again! It was genuinely just quite bleak. Um, so yeah, that and I think and there were a few I didn't include because again they were just like you know the amount of MPs who were just absolute raging anti-Semites. Well, again, m- more than you'd think, at least more than I thought um, before before doing my research. So I think th- these were the two main things. Um, and yeah, and as a result, actually, quite a lot of them did not get included. That again, the pedophile one was actually I would say quite tricky because in some cases, because you know because of the morals of the era some of them it was actually not clear if these were men who were gay basically and at the time you know there were not always especially several hundred years ago there was not always a line between actually like saying okay what did you do like was it like sex with men or sex with boys so that was actually I, I got into quite bleak places of like certain people saying okay actually is it a case of what you did was you know would have been acceptable today was not acceptable at the time or you know you were just a monster um so that was quite tough um but yeah no, the, these were yeah these were the two just like can't be too racist, can't be paedophiles. Those are good rules. Um. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's them, yeah, for my friends as well, you know, it's one of my main rules. Um, so as a it's, it's rules to live by, definitely, yeah. So, Marie, let's, let's get away from the paedophiles and the, the raging anti-Semites, um, because that's another rule that everyone should live, live by, is getting far away from them as we can. <laughs> What have you got coming up next? We know this book's just coming out, but um, have you targeted what misfits you're going to be looking into next? Or are you taking a break and just enjoying the bask of publication? Um, I mean, to be fair, yeah, I, I am partly doing that because it turns out just writing books, quite knackering, really. Um, but uh, but no, I, I do have, sadly, which I know is a very sort of like a massive cop out, but I, I do have some things um, that will be coming out in the coming months and next year. But none of which I can talk about because otherwise um, I would probably be in trouble. Um, but no, th- th- there will be more things. But actually, I mean, the, the things I've worked on are mostly not about politics. And I am very keen to write, I think, more books about British politics. It's just, I don't, I'm not really sure what, you know, I've not, I've not quite had the light bulb moment uh, yet. So actually, if any listeners have any ideas, <laughs> next books I could write, please get in touch. You know, I'll, I'll give you not a lot of money, but I'll maybe, like, I'll buy you, three pints that feels like an acceptable number of pints to buy in exchange for a book idea or you can hand them a glass of wine there's been some experience there <laughs> so if someone does want to to find out what that will be how, how do they follow you how, how do people reach out um so i spend far too much time on twitter i'm at young vulgarian um on there um and yeah, and that, that's mainly it to be honest i just spend my entire life on twitter and then i'm a freelance journalist so i will just pop up in unexpected places quite often. Um, and I've got a weekly column as well at the Independent uh, newspaper, which is now a website. Um, but yeah, so that, that's I'm kind of everywhere, which is quite nice. <laughs> Super. So I guess we can say thank you so much for coming. Uh, we're going to put your, both your books onto our very own bookshop as well, and they'll be all linked in the description. So if anyone wants to dive into both of these, they can grab them through us as well so thank you so much for joining us marie this has been really good fun oh thank you so much for having me hello folks zach again here as you know we love bringing you these podcasts but each episode has a huge investment of time behind it for every hour of showtime there's often a good four or five or six hours of work that's going in behind the scenes we want to bring you more content video content even 
But as reality has hit and the need to earn a living has returned, we just haven't been able to do that. That's where you come in. Your support doesn't need to be financial. You can follow us on Twitter at hack underscore history. Find us on Facebook and Instagram. Subscribe on YouTube. Even simple likes, shares and retweets make a huge difference in widening our reach beyond the small army of you who tune in. And if you love the show, leave a review. If all our listeners were able to find the two minutes to do that, it would massively increase our reach. Of course, we totally get that times are hard and money is tight. If you can spare something and want to, there are different ways that you can help. If you want to become a regular supporter, check out patreon.com forward slash history hack. There are all kinds of perks across different levels of support, with prices starting at £3 a month. If you just want to send us a one-off tip, then visit co-fee.com forward slash history hack. The links are in the description to this episode. But importantly, also have a think about supporting our listeners. The hour they spend with us is a minuscule fraction of the time that they spend researching and writing their books. With that in mind, we set up the History Hack bookstore, where you can support both them and us, instead of funding Jeff Bezos' next trip into space, which is what pretty much happens when you buy via Amazon. Again, the link is in the description, and we have a huge back catalogue of titles written by our guests. When you buy via uk.bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack, we get a percentage, and so do independent booksellers. Whatever form your support takes, we massively appreciate it. So from Alex, Boney and me, and the rest of your down-the-pub regulars, thank you, and have a great day. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.